0: Be covering this morning. And I kind of give you this opening thought the idea that we're going to kind of start with, explain, and then circle back to at the end. And it's the central idea that we're going to be focusing on this morning. And it's this that hope drives faithfulness. Hope drives faithfulness. So as we hope in God, we are driven and motivated to love Him, honor Him, to obey Him. With joy and with consistency. So I kind of said it this way if faithfulness was a car, hope would be the engine. So hope drives faithfulness. And we're looking at this idea as demonstrated in the life of Daniel. Now, yes, Daniel 6 is, of course, the focal point, um, but it's important to also understand that you can't just isolate chapter 6 from the rest of the book because, in many ways, Daniel 6 is meant to be a structural climax of God's narrative on Daniel's life. So typically when you see this chapter, Daniel in 6, just so we all know, this is Daniel in the lion's den. Like this is the classic, uh, you know, and if, if you think about Daniel in the lion's den, when it's always been illustrated, whether it's like pictures or uh, flannel graph, which I know some of you think I'm not old enough to know what flannel graph is, but I definitely know what flannel graph is. Uh, and if you remember these like illustrations, like, you know, Daniel's always, maybe young or like I say middle-aged, and he's, you know, he's got like his big dark beard and big biceps or whatever. Um, but usually when you see it illustrated, we think of Daniel and chapter 6 as maybe this younger or even just like a middle-aged guy. But I want to point out that as you're studying the structure of the entire book, you actually find that 1 through 6 cover Daniel's entire life. So just to kind of help illustrate that, when you meet Daniel in chapter one, remember he's a captive taken from Israel to Babylon. And in Daniel one, Daniel's like 13 to 15 years old. So he's a teenager. Like if he was our church, he would have been playing dodgeball on Friday. You know, like, so chapter one, he's a teenager. And then you move in kind of like three, four, and five. And actually you find Daniel and his friends are kind of in their forties and fifties. But now I say, by the time you get to Daniel six, Daniel is in his 80s and possibly even his early 90s. So when you get to Daniel 6, we are meeting a man who is, we say, at sort of these like latter years of his life, in his 80s or ninety, possibly even his 90s. At 80 years old, Daniel has spent the vast majority of his life as a captive in a foreign land. He was taken from his family and his home by a foreign power, Babylon, forced into service of that government that had overtaken his people and the same government that destroyed the first temple in Jerusalem. But if you know the story of the first sort of five chapters or so and even six, what you find is that Daniel is not bitter, he's not angry, he's not frustrated, but he is simply faithful. Despite the constant change that happened all around him throughout his entire life, what we find in Daniel 6 is an old and tried, but experienced and faithful man who is, yet, uh, who is still not bitter, he's not angry or grouchy, but he is in chapter 6 who he has been all his life, which is faithful. Resting in God's sovereignty, driven to faithfulness by hope in God, no matter what was happening or changing around him. So we come back to that statement that hope drives faithfulness. But what was it that Daniel hoped in throughout his life? What was it about God that drove Daniel to serve faithfully uh, and honorably through his entire life, no matter where he was? Now, as you look at the book of Daniel, there is a heavy emphasis, a theme, and even sub-themes of God's sovereignty And it is this hope in God's sovereignty. Knowing God and then knowing that he was always in control is what forged the character and integrity of Daniel through his life. But it's especially highlighted here in chapter 6 towards the end of his life. Now, if you're looking at Daniel, you're like, wait a second. Chapter 6, there's 12 chapters. Like, you're six chapters in and you're at the end of his life. When you look at the structure of the book, It breaks down into three main sections. Chapter 1 is a historical prologue. It gives context to everything that unfolds in Daniel's life over the next 60 years. And actually, that first chapter is in Hebrew. And then as you go to chapters 2 to 6, it changes to Aramaic, to the language it's written in is Aramaic. And in 2 through 6, it's essentially the narrative of Daniel's life. Of course, this includes, uh, I always call him Rack, Shack, and Benny. I blame VeggieTales for that. Uh, you got Rack, Shack, and Benny, his three buddies. They're included in that narrative as well. But Daniel is still sort of this central figure. And Daniel is the author, by the way, of the book. Then when you go to chapter 7, it shifts back into Hebrew and cha- all the way to chapter 12 There's a heavy shift towards prophecy. So a lot of you maybe who've studied that, you know Daniel is a huge book of prophecy there, or at least that 7 to 12 section. Um, But I do point out that these prophecies happen at various stages in Daniel's life, not all at once. And in fact, a lot of the prophecies that you read in 7 through 12 happen chronologically before even the lion's den. So um, I just say that because it's important. We're We're not diving into anything but chapter 6. But that being said... It is really important to understand the purpose of the book itself, the structure of it, and how this entire book was meant to give hope to God's people. That was the point. When Daniel wrote this book, 1 to 6, this narrative of his life, and then you have 7 to 12, like the prophecy, the whole point of the book was Daniel writing to give his people hope. But the question is, what was he trying to drive them to have hope in? Daniel's goal in writing this book was to give hope to God's people by emphasizing God's complete sovereignty and intimate involvement in everything, not just Israel. But also in the world powers of the time. And when you start to deal with the prophecies, the futuristic prophecies, it was not just the powers of the time, but Daniel showing God's people, God is completely sovereign even over things that haven't even happened yet. And even from our perspective, they haven't happened yet. So his whole goal was God is sovereign, God is in control, and to put it real sweet and simple, God wins. Giving people hope that have been dealing with captivity, that have been dealing with loss and the ups and downs of powers rising and falling. You read Daniel, and the, what the takeaway is supposed to be God's in control. No matter what it looks like to me, God is sovereign, and God is in control. So to keep this super simple for all of us, mainly for me, but for all of us, I'm sure you'll benefit from it, hopefully. Uh, chapter 1 through 6 reminds us of God's sovereignty over the past and present. It, what has happened, and this is obviously from Daniel's perspective, what has happened and what is happening. Then chapter 7 to 12 reminds us of God's sovereignty over things that will happen, which is the future, and of course, those chapters tie really intricately to Revelation. So in a span of 12 chapters, you are supposed to walk away from the book of Daniel with peace and joy and encouragement with hope that God is sovereign, and that is to say that God is in control and he always will be. So the purpose of Daniel writing it was to give hope to God's people by pointing them to that sovereignty. Now again, we say that because it's critically important to kind of conceptualize all of that because in chapter 6, chapter 6 in Daniel's in the lion's den is a climax of that theme and Daniel's life. Because 6 into 7 is a critical transition, and you're supposed to look at 6, Daniel in the lion's den, as this climax of God's sovereignty in Daniel's life. Remember, he's in his 80s. He's gone through all the up and downs of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Babylon and Persia and Darius and Cyrus. All this has gone on, but you look at Daniel, and you see God's sovereignty, and it's a structural climax to that theme. So as we're going to shift now into the nitty-gritty of chapter 6, You can't lose sight of the overarching theme, which is, remember, hope drives faithfulness. And the longer wording is, hope in God's sovereignty drives us towards faithfulness, okay? So, this, where you kind of really begin chapter 6, you have to read the last two verses of 5. So, this is where Persia, the Persian Empire, conquers the Babylonian Empire, And I'm just going to read briefly uh, chapter 5, verse 30. So it's just the last two verses of 5 and the first two verses of 6. So Daniel 5, verse 30. And that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius, the Median, took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Now 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes which should be over the whole kingdom and over these 3 or over these 3 presidents of whom Daniel was first that the princes might give accounts unto them and the king should have no damage so in short chapter 5 ends with the fall of the babylonian empire Now, if you remember Nebuchadnezzar from the first few chapters, he has long passed away. Belshazzar is ruling. And of course, chapter 5, remember, is the party, the the writing on the wall. Um, That all happens. But the main takeaway that we need for this morning is that Persia defeats uh, Babylon Now, I note this, this is a very well-documented historical event. This happened in 539 B.C., and and, and actually what's interesting is Daniel's account matches everything that we've ever found archaeologically and historically relating to these events, even how the city was taken and um, Belshazzar's actual execution that same night. So when you look at verse 30, it says that the powers, the Persian powers, put a ruler in place over the old Babylon, and it mentions his age. He's 62 years old. Now, it de- identifies him as Darius. Now, looking at this, uh, we're not going to go too far down this, but just touching on it. Um, when you look at the language, it's likely that Darius is a reference to his title and may not have been like his actual name. I mentioned that because like, we're like, oh, that's kind of weird, um, but it's kind of like Joe Biden, you would say Mr. President, and it's, I just say as an illustration, like his title kind of becomes his name. So it's not, I just say it's not that weird that it would be more of a reference possibly to his title, um, but in principle, it's its similar. Um, I just write kind of based off biblical teaching in tandem with confirmed Persian history, uh, This is maybe, I'm going to just say, it is my personal perspective that his actual name was probably the II. But I'm going to stop right there because it is a little bit of a rabbit trail. Uh, I'm going to say that, but I also want to note that if you're interested in that dynamic, um, I've got a really good historical Bible commentary that is really helpful with that. Uh, And actually, there's a YouTube channel, a guy that I found has a really neat video. It's like 30 minutes long. On Darius and who he was. It's really interesting, but to save like half an hour, we're not going to dive into it. But if you're interesting, I wrote it down and I can share it with you later. Uh, If you're not, then we're just going to keep going anyways. Um, And I write it this, even though the Bible's not technically a historical textbook, the Bible is in fact 100% accurate regarding its statements about world history, which I say shouldn't be shocking considering God's the one that authored it, uh, which points actually back to God's sovereignty anyways. Um, I do want to take note, though, of what the Bible says concerning this guy. So we're uh, looking at Darius, the individual. Daniel sort of implies that Darius is king or he's ruler over the old Babylon. It doesn't say that Darius was king of Persia. Now, you study Persian history, and actually, you study Scripture, Second Chronicles, Ezra, other, later on in Daniel, and there's a few other portions. Um, we know that Cyrus the Great, and the Bible says it as well, Cyrus the Great was the ruler over the Persian Empire at this time in history. Um, when you look at 1 and 2, though, it clarifies what Darius' job was. And his job, as we saw in verses 1 and 2, was to smoothly transition the Babylonian assets into the possession of the Persians and ensure that everything blended over smoothly. So when you look at verse 2, right, it says uh, that the king should have no damage. The idea there in the language is no loss, no mismanagement, or no disorganization. Cyrus wanted a smooth transition of Babylon into Persia, and he didn't want to lose any of the benefits or assets from that transition. So what does Darius do? It says that he looks at this old kingdom of Babylon, and he decides to set 120 reps over these various provinces within the old Babylon. Now over that group, it says that he picks three men to kind of manage and, and rule over these 120 men. And this is where Daniel, you know, the hero, this is where he enters the story. So look at verse 3. Then this Daniel, uh, remember it says he was set above these three presidents, was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king, Darius, thought to set him over the whole realm. So Daniel is shifted into a position of prominence over everyone. So all these guys, all these rulers, he's set in a position over every single one of them and to where he finds himself actually reporting directly to Darius. And remember, Darius reports directly to Cyrus. So you have this theme of Daniel just supposed to get the image of he's very high up. He has a lot of power, a lot of authority, and a lot of influence. And we get, I say, a very brief glimpse into Darius's character, um, which we're actually going to be talking about as we kind of move through this. And Darius uh, and Daniel as well, but Darius gives us a very valuable lesson on leadership. At the end of verse three, you'll notice that it says that Darius thought to set Daniel over the whole realm. And the idea is that he was planning or starting to work things to make sure Daniel was in charge of the whole realm of Babylon. But at the end of five, whose job was that? That was Darius's job. So what you have this little glimpse into, you know, I just wrote that's Darius's job. It's, he's kind of a lazy bum. Like, oh look, this guy could do it for me and do, and he's kind of like transitioning to move pieces to make Daniel basically do his job for him. Uh, and I note this that as a leader, it is important to know how to properly, you could say, delegate. But there is a difference between effective delegation and laziness. And Darius gives us a glimpse, and we're actually going to come back to this, his character as a leader, in a minute. Um, but we, I just wrote this, that delegation, or you could say management, is not making someone do something that you just don't want to do. It's placing people in roles of responsibility with the goal of spreading the workload and, and kind of, you say, developing people. That's, that's what your job is to do, is to place people and spreading a workload. But again, the idea is also developing and helping people grow. And I just say that to say this, That's not what Darius is doing, and again, if you're interested, Alexander McLaren, he's got a great big section in his commentary about Darius, about this weakness of leadership. Darius realizes, and again, remember, because this is why the history is important, Daniel has been part of the Babylonian leadership for over 60 years, okay, Remember, he's 80 years old. He's been involved in the Babylonian government for 60 years, and he sees this guy, meets him, is interacting with him, and realizes this guy's got experience. He knows the system in and out. His knowledge of the system and experience in working in it would have been highly valuable to the Persian government. Daniel was a huge asset, and this is actually, again, I just noted, you notice the, the fruit of God's sovereignty in Daniel's life now kind of using Daniel in a prominent position. The kingdoms have changed and God goes, yeah, but I've been using Daniel and prepping for this his whole life. So as the process begins, Darius realizes that Daniel is not only highly experienced, but he's also got something very special about him, right? This spirit. Now, of course, we know that that's the spirit of God, but I just want you to notice this like practical implication. It's the effect of God's intimate presence within Daniel's life. And of course, sovereignty, yes, but we know through his life, Daniel's faithfulness to grow, to mature, to serve and to love God, when all that he did, and regardless of what was changing, Daniel was always faithful to God. Daniel's relationship with God influenced the way he lived, but we also look at his professional career and say it wasn't just how he lived, but it was how he functioned even within his career, how he worked. Daniel, it was both his private and his public life that was clearly impacted by his personal walk with God. Now, before we kind of shift into Daniel, I just want to make sure what we're learning about Darius, because it's going to come back up. And it teaches us a very important lesson on leadership. Darius sees someone who can basically do his job for him, and he can just kind of sit back and relax a little bit. Now, this is going to be proven by, remember how easily he's manipulated? It, it's a manifestation of that as well, so we'll come back to it. But I point this out because this is important. It's not just laziness. The failure of Darius as a leader, and we'll see this play out, is lack a lack of character and a lack of integrity. Darius is, in a way, intentionally taking advantage of someone for personal benefit or comfort, which, one, is wrong, but, two, it demonstrates weak leadership. Now, this idea of weak leadership, we're going to come back to but it's tied to character and integrity. Um, Now, this is going to play out, so I want you to, I say, bookmark that, and we're going to come back to it in just a minute Um, because it does come back when he signs that decree about the prayer and petition. So just have Darius weak leadership and then we'll, we'll bookmark it, and we'll flip right back, okay? So as a result of this, though, so, you know, Daniel's moving. Uh, he looks at Daniel, and this is all happening over weeks and probably even months. So there, things are shifting, and he's like, all right, I'm going to start moving Daniel a little bit more up, give him a little bit more responsibility. Like, he's going to be over everything. This is going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. So he starts doing it. Things are unfolding. But what Scripture notes is that these other guys are not happy right? They're like the the grouch, like popping out of the trash can. Like they're like, hey, this is, they're not happy. They see Daniel and from their perspective, a non-Medo-Persian captive. Now remember, this is like the loser of the losers to them. Like, you lost to Babylon, and then you lost to us. So in their minds, Daniel's like a double loser. And this is, again, this is just them being critical. They're seeing this guy who's not one of them being put in one of the highest positions of power and influence. He's not one of their people. He's lost. So in their brain, they're like, why is, why is a loser being—like, they're just—they're not happy, okay? They're not happy about him being placed over everyone. They don't like it. But there's a really important question that sometimes we just hop over. They're just angry, and they don't like Daniel. But why? Why do they not like Daniel? Because it's not like, you know, we say it's not like because of who he was in the sense of like his people. Why do they not like him? Why do they really not want him to be in power or what scares them about Daniel coming into a greater role of power or influence? And I say we kind of get some clarification from that in the next chapter or in the next section. So now look at verses four through nine. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he, Daniel, was faithful, neither was there any error uh, or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it uh, against him concerning the law of his God. Excuse me. And then... Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents and the, of the kingdom, the governors, the princes, the counselors, the captains, have consulted together to establish a royal statue and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of God or man or any God or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing, that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. So, uh, again, we're going to look at this, but I, I do write this that we do Daniel a terrible disservice when we put his faithfulness into sort of this like legalistic box of simple form and function of just his life and routine. A lot of times, what I've heard um, sort of applied here is like, you know, if someone were to follow you, how long would it take for them to follow? You know, we kind of heard that, like they followed you around, da 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 da, da. and we kind of use it to push uh, a, a sort of sometimes I think unintentionally manipulative, like behavior modification, like someone's always watching you. Um, what we think of or what it does is it makes us think of the Christian life as just something that we do. We put on the mask, we wear the costume at the appropriate times, and we just kind of hope that no one notices that we're imperfect. And I just note this because this is not what them watching him was about. It wasn't just like we're just going to really watch him really close for a few days and see what we can find. It says that they're looking for something concerning the kingdom And uh, there's an emphasis of what's really going on. Verse 4 and 5 clarify that their goal was to find evidence of negligence, corruption, or disqualification from the position that Daniel was being put in. So they're trying to prove he's negligent, he's corrupt, he's, uh, there's, there's gotta be something wrong here that we can use to say, oh, he, he, he's disqualified for that position. So they're really looking at his professional career over the last 60 years. These are men that are higher up, they're in higher up roles of leadership and influence within the Persian government. And their response to someone like Daniel being given greater power and influence is like, he's gotta be corrupt somewhere, right? He's 80, there's gotta be some dirt that we can dig up on this guy over the last 60 years of his, his career, so in many ways, it's, we won't dive down this, but they're kind of assuming Daniel's just like them. But he's not, of course, he's not anything like them at all. Now what most, most people agree was likely weeks or even months of research on Daniel after looking into every relationship he had, every job he held, every project he worked on, every budget that he organized, they're digging into his 60 plus year career, trying to find proof of corruption, negligence, or anything to prove that he is unqualified, and they find nothing a whole big fat bag of nothing. They don't find anything on him. So, note though, through captivity, through power changes, through kingdoms rising and falling, Daniel was always faithful to God, and he always did what was good and was right. Now, Daniel isn't perfect, but we note blameless. Blameless is this, this they no matter what they tried to throw at him, nothing was gonna stick. The verses imply also, as you kind of move into five, that they dove into his personal life. But even within his personal private life, what's their conclusion? This guy is super faithful to his God. So we're just going to have to figure out how to use that against him. So really the best thing about him, the, the greatest thing about him, is what they end up having to use against him. And I just wrote this, that if the world is going to hold anything against you, and I say if your family is going to hold anything against you, if your friends are going to hold anything against you, if anybody's going to hold anything against you, let it firmly be your faithfulness to God. And that is a hill that is always worth dying on. Faithfulness to God is always a hill that's worth dying on. Daniel is a great example of that, especially within the secular world. Never compromise your walk with God and never compromise doing what is right. Now, this gets us into the leadership, right? The character and integrity conversation. Because remember, I told you to bookmark the weak leadership of Darius, because this is going to come back up as we move through Daniel, Daniel and Darius. Darius, now, he is quick to be convinced to sign a decree that clearly condemned Daniel, right? Like, you look at this, you pray to anybody, if you're faithful to anybody for 30 days, you will be executed. And I note this again as you move through the whole narrative. The narrative overall makes it very clear that Darius is fully aware of Daniel's faithfulness to God, which again shows you Daniel's heart for evangelism even within his relationships. Daniel was very aware, or I'm sorry, Darius was very aware of Daniel's relationship with God uh, and, and, and knew about it, right? Darius doesn't think about the effects of the decision that he makes on the people around him. He allows a simple stroking of his ego to make him do something that would eventually hurt him. But I want you to notice the point of this is to contrast the character and integrity of Daniel. He's done what's right. He's been faithful for his whole life. And then you have one guy who is quickly manipulated to make a foolish, selfish, sort of self-praising decision. Darius chose what was personally convenient to the loss of what was personally beneficial. And he didn't even realize it until it was too late. And I just note, selfish decisions and selfish leadership will always come back to bite you. It doesn't matter if it's at work, the home, doesn't matter. It's always going to come back to bite you. And I mentioned Alexander McLaren on Darius. His summary statement on Darius is really interesting. He said, in leadership, weakness is the same as wickedness. In leadership, weakness is the same as wickedness. Now, this is important. We're talking about weakness of character, not weakness of personality. If you lack character, if you lack integrity, your leadership will be weak and you will make sinful, wicked, foolish decisions. Now, I'm noting this because it's supposed to be encouraging. Leadership is about character and integrity, it's not about personality. And I say, if it was about personality, I would have no hope because I have the personality of, like, a traffic cone, okay? I, (laughs) if leadership was based on personality, it would be limited to a very small section of people. And I also say if leadership was only about personality, like, everybody in the Bible would have been, like, exactly the same. And I'm like, look at Daniel compared to Joseph and look at some of the, and I'm look at Paul compared to Timothy, right? Like these two guys who were so different personality wise, but they're, I say this leadership principle is not tied to personality. It's tied to character and integrity. Leadership about that character integrity, it doesn't matter if it's home, the church, work, government. And and I want to point out though, why is this an important contrast? Because that's what was intimidating about Daniel. They saw a guy about to be put in a high position of leadership who had character and integrity, who was an actual strong leader, and that scared them. It wasn't because Daniel had a big, loud personality, it wasn't because he had a commanding presence, and maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I'm saying that is irrelevant what we're talking about. Daniel was intimidating to these men because he had integrity because he was faithfully consistent to do what was right. And that, that scared them. It scared them that somebody was gonna be over them that was gonna make them do what was right and hold them accountable if they didn't. And they didn't like that. And there's an idea, again, this emphasis of strong leadership in Daniel is tied to his faithfulness, but that character and integrity that was a result of a personal and intimate relationship with God. You say, oh, I'll just have character and integrity. You separate it from your walk with God you're going to struggle and stumble. But if it's based on a love of God and wanting to please him, not wanting to please people, not wanting to think people, you're doing a good job. If your mindset is I'm going to love and serve God, I'm going to do what pleases him, recognize the natural fruit of that or supernatural because it's the Holy Spirit is character integrity, but recognize it's a direct link to his relationship with God, which is important because what do they highlight about the only thing they can use against him? his relationship with God, right? So it's all kind of within that narrative as you're mo- moving through it. This faithfulness in doing what was right is proven in his public career, uh, in his, his, his life, but now it's actually proven in his personal life with his daily routine. So this is where Daniel, in a sense, his example proves his character integrity. So look at verse 10, and I'm gonna read through 18. We'll talk about it, and then we'll like work through it, okay? So Daniel chapter six, look at verse 10. And we're gonna read through 18. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree, speaking to Darius now, that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days, save of thee, O king, uh, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. Now I'm gonna pause right there because I want you to just see what happens, okay? So they signed the, de- the decree. Daniel finds out about it. And I think what we do sometimes is we paint Daniel as this like, oh yeah? And he's like, boom, I'm gonna pray. Like, watch me pray. Like, watch me do it. You know, like he, we, we act like he's, he's, trying to, he's trying to stir the pot. Like he's trying to mess with, the, stir the waters, whatever. And what it says is he hears about the decree, and let's just recognize his, his prayer routine was to go out like on his balcony and pray and sing out loud to God. That was his routine. These guys know that. And it says he did everything as he did aforetime. And I note, it, note his character because I'm like, he could have very easily changed his routine for 30 days, right? Like we think, why not just keep the door shut, you know? pray in your closet for 30 days and you're fine. And I say, it's because he had integrity. Now he knew they were watching him, right? Like he, he's, it's not like he's, he's like unaware of it. But I think we act like he's this rebel just trying to fight the system. I'm like, no, he's a faithful man of character integrity who kept doing what he was doing, no matter what the cost was. And this is actually supposed to connect you back to Daniel three. Remember Rack, and Benny? Like God can save us, but if not, we're still not gonna worship that golden idol, right? These chapters are actually connected because you see the same thing in Daniel. I don't care what the law is. I, he's, you see this civil respect, but his civil respect stopped at disobedience to God. I'm going to be faithful to God and I don't care what the cost is. And that's where you see this character and integrity. And I say highlighting that because we paint him as like this like righteous rebel. And it was like, no, he was a faithful man of character and integrity. And I do point that out also because the accusation that they make against him, because we we're like, oh, he prayed and he wasn't supposed to pray. The accusation within the law was rebellion. If you go to anybody for anything except the king for 30 days, you're a rebel. You're, it's espionage, treachery. Like it was, it was a capital crime. It was a serious, it wasn't just like, oh, you prayed. No, no, you know, woo, in the lions. It was a capital, this is like death penalty kind of crime. It's rebellion and treachery against the king. He knows that, and again, just understanding the severity of the situation, and he keeps his integrity and moves forward. So that was, that's through verse, um, I think I stopped at 13, so let's move into 14 now because we're going to shift a little bit into Darius. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him, uh, to deliver Daniel. Then these men, the other guys, assembled to the king and said unto the king, "Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statue which the king established may be changed. I want to highlight 15 because it's important. This is, uh, this is like blackmail. They're going to the king. They're, he's trying to save Daniel. And they're like, excuse me, sir. Excuse me. <laughs> if you do this, you're breaking the law. And we'll, we'll remember that. right? They're, they're threatening him. Now, that's important because of what he does at the end, but just going to say this was not a smart move by these guys, okay? So we'll just keep going, okay? Verse 16, they threatened the king. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said to Daniel, thy God, whom thou servest continually, so a confirmation of his character, integrity, faithfulness to God, he will deliver thee. A stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, passed the night fasting, neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. So we'll pick up there in a minute. Um, But again, looking at all this, and you see, I say, shift to Darius. He is confronted with the foolishness of his decision. Now, I note this again. Remember, this law clearly condemned men like Daniel, and he doesn't even realize it until now. And what's his first thought when he finds out about the law and about Daniel? His first thought is, what have I done? He's distressed with himself. He knows what he's done, and I say he's confronted with the foolishness of his decision, Although he is a selfish and weak leader, and it's interesting, I just note this as a commendation to Daniel, he cares very much about Daniel. His preservation of Daniel is not anything but that relationship and that care. And again, I noted that Daniel, that kind of evangelistic mind in his relationships. So they throw Daniel in though, and remember he is threatened by these guys, which will come back up. And in their eyes, Daniel's fate is sealed. Now there's something to note in this story before we kind of hit the climax. You'll notice all the way up to this point Daniel hasn't said anything. There's no word, there's no fight. The only words coming out of his mouth are praise and thanks to God and his prayer. And I think this is really important because in this silence we actually see a very clear type of Christ, a of, uh, type of Christ in Daniel in this chapter. You actually see a lot of that through the whole book. But I want you to highlight and notice the silence of Daniel is this connection to the silence of Christ, right? He doesn't cause a stir. He doesn't fight his accusers. He simply does what was right, and he trusts God with the results. Daniel had no reason to believe that God would save him from the lion's mouths. And as far as he knew, being lowered into that lion's den was the end of the line. He very simply could have changed his routine for 30 days and not have been found out. He, remember his power, he could have worked the system or even fought the injustice of it, but instead, he simply and quietly remains faithful to God and accepts the consequences, I say the legal consequences for his choices. And it proves that he was not a rebel, but more so shows that he prioritized faithfulness to God over even personal preservation. Now, the thought is, what's the result? Well, the result is that God works an absolute miracle. This echoes back to the theme of Daniel, right? That God's sovereignty over all the affairs of men, over all the affairs of men. God steps in to remind us that he is always in control, no matter what the world says, does, or thinks, that he is sovereign over everything. And this is where we find the miracle in a den of lions. So look at verses um, 19 to 23. Then the king arose very early the the next morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions. This lamentable, I mean, he's weeping, he's crying. This is like ugly crying, screaming, voice is probably cracking, okay. He yells down into the den, den of lions, and what does he hear echo back? Then Daniel said unto the king, and I'm like, there has to be a little bit of sarcasm in this. O King, live forever! You know, like that's 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 what the other guy said. But anyways, O King, live forever. My God hath sent His angel and hath shut the lions' mouths that they have not hurt me, for as much as before Him innocency was found in me, and also before Thee, O King, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceeding glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no, ma- no manner of hurt was found upon him. So no scratch, not even a bruise, nothing, no damage at all, because he believed in his God. And that word there, believed, is the hope, the rest, the confidence, okay? He, he rested and trusted in God. Uh, and that was verse, um, sorry, 23. Now look at verse 24. The king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel... And they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions had the mastery of them and break all their bones and pieces or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Then you have in 25 to 27 uh, this decree that Darius puts out about God. What's really neat is 27. Uh, what does he note all these statements about God to? What does he make connection? Who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So he connects the character, nature, the things that he's learned about God to who? To Daniel. So you have this this testimony. And then 28, this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, it's really neat you follow Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus is the one who actually allows the Jews to go back to Jerusalem under... Uh, Uh, Zerubbabel. And then, uh, but actually uh, what you find later on in Daniel, it talks about Daniel in the third year of uh, the reign of Cyrus. Uh, Daniel's actually a huge, he plays a huge role in actually the Jews returning. So it's really cool. We're not going to talk about all that, but I just think it's a really neat um, thing that you see about him and this continued influence even after these events. So going back to the lion's den though, you can't can't just like hop over it, right? Um, This is important this is more than um, uh, lockjaw, okay? Uh, it says that he closed the mouths, and sometimes we're like, he was lowered, and the lions were like, mm, mm, mm. you know, like they couldn't open their mouths, but I don't know if you've seen, you know, like the analogy or uh, uh, the autonomy or whatever of a, of a lion, but they have more than one way to kill you. <laughs> like, uh, the point is not they couldn't eat him, and this is neat. God completely changed their nature. They weren't, lions anymore that something in that den totally changed about the lions and that's why the detail there was no manner of hurt no bruise they didn't try to attack him and go like well i guess we're going hungry tonight like he lowered them and you you have the idea of like a a cat you know like oh a friend you know like if you have a friendly cat some are not very friendly um but it's a really important i'm allergic to cats so i don't like them it's not personal it's it's just business like i'm i'm (laughs) I don't like you because you make me sick. Um, so, anyways, that's just side note. If you're a cat person, if you're a cat person, this would have been like the coolest miracle ever. Um, but I just note this: um, it's more than just lock, lock, lock jaw, and I do believe that this is something that's missed or just hopped over too often in this passage, because the question is, what exactly happened that night in the, the den of lions? Daniel's first words of the chapter, the of the whole chapter. His first words of the entire chapter are about glorifying God's work, not justifying himself. Now, does he, I say, justify himself? Yes. But he says that God's miracle, God's sovereignty was the proof that he was innocent before God and man. Now, you do find 24, the men and their families are thrown into the lion's den and I know it, we're not the Bible's not saying that that was the right decision by Darius, but it's the decision that he made as ruler. You see the foolishness of their trying to blackmail him a little bit. Um, and it is, a, I say, a harsh ending for these people. And I also say you want to be, I say, sympathetic in the right way, that this isn't a, a terribly tragic end for these men, and obviously for their families as well. But I want to set a reminder that it does remind us that making decisions purely for self-preservation Preservation will get you nowhere, or worse, you'll end up, it'll cost you uh, everything, mainly your life, and I say specifically in reference to eternity. But back to the lion's den, Daniel says that God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and that, again, this inference is that God completely changed their nature so that they didn't even want to hurt Daniel. The image in the den of lions is actually supposed to be the Garden of Eden, When Daniel was being lowered to his death, God transformed the most severe trial of his life into the most unique experience of God's presence, protection, and peace that he likely ever had. And I just wrote this as sort of a summary thought, that only God can transform a den of lions into a garden of Eden. Only God can transform a den of lions into a garden of Eden. There are times in our lives, and kind of moving into our conclusion now, there are times in our lives when we will face trials that we feel we can do nothing about. Now, sometimes there are things that we're able to work through, certain issues or certain pains, but I do recognize that there are such trials in our life that we face that do alter our lives forever. And We ask the question, what does that have to do with God's sovereignty? And again, I just say only God can transform a den of lions into a garden of Eden. Now, it's important to note that we are not promised easy lives. You understand? We are not promised easy lives. We are not guaranteed deliverance from trials even as we walk through life. So what's the greatest comfort of of trials? Because we can't, sometimes there are things that you, okay, God's sovereign, and we're talking about things that sometimes you can't change. The greatest comfort should not be deliverance. The greatest comfort should be that God walks through those trials with you. And actually, Psalm 23, right, says that the greatest comfort is that when God is walking with us through the trials and through the valleys of life, not necessarily the the deliverances. But we ask this, how can we faithfully, through even the most difficult, painful, or confusing time within our lives, walk faithfully with God? And I go back to where we started. Hope drives faithfulness. As we hope in God, as we trust his hand, his work, his love, his word, we are driven to our needs, recognizing that we are not in control. We are not in control. He is. C.S. Lewis said this, it is not your business to alter outcomes. It is not your business to alter outcomes. It is your business to do right. And when you have done so, The rest lies with God. This is a simple but can be a life-altering truth. If you would commit to being faithful to God, if you would commit to simply always do the next right thing, you may be shocked at how quickly a den of lions could change to an experience of God's peace and presence within your life. However, as a warning, the moment that you think you hold the steering wheel of life, is the moment that you'll all but guarantee a crash. You think you're in charge. You think you're in control. And I would just ask, where did that get these men that accused and attacked Daniel? Didn't work out. We are not in control. They thought that they were in charge. They thought they, thought they could control the outcome. But as too many have learned through human history, only God controls outcomes, not us. So what does this have to do with God's sovereignty and how it illustrates itself vividly in Daniel 6? Two things. First, God's control reminds us that we are not in control. Now, I know never separate who God is from what he does. When you truly know God, his control and sovereignty is comforting. If you just say he's in control, but you don't know who he is, his control is going to scare you. But if you see he's in control and you know his heart, you know his love, but you also know his holiness and his righteousness, his control is going to give you peace, that that it's it's the peace that passes all understanding. If God's sovereignty doesn't comfort us, then we have to look at our understanding of God. And I note this, that the fault is always in our thinking, not in God's character or nature. Now we tie God's sovereignty to our personal responsibility. So yes, first, God's control reminds us that we're not in control. But second, resting in God's control drives us to faithfulness. And this is where we finish where we started. Excuse me. Hope drives faithfulness. Scripture says that Daniel experienced God's presence, God's blessing, God's protection, and God's guidance because he believed him. And the idea is that he hoped in him, rested in him, followed and obeyed him. He was simply faithful to God. Daniel's faithfulness was not the result of good choices and big moments. His faithfulness started in chapter 1 with a simple decision, and note, as a teenager, a simple decision as a teenager to refuse to compromise his standards, to not eat what was put in front of him, right, in chapter 1, to not compromise what he knew was right, but to trust God to strengthen and provide for him. Over the next 60 years, Daniel's faithfulness to God was forged in the little, daily routines of study, prayer, obedience, joyful excellence in service, humble care for his friends and relationships, and a simple dedication to do what was right. If you study 7 to 12, you see connections in Jeremiah. You see his knowledge of Scripture, his knowledge of of things that had been given to other prophets. This daily dedication to God, it forged that character and integrity over 60 years. When we meet him in his 80s in Daniel 6, as Psalm 57 says, Daniel's heart was fixed on God and nothing was going to change that. Romans 5:3 through 5 says this, "We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience what? Hope, right? Hope hope maketh not ashamed." Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Tribulation works patience, patience experience, and experience hope. And I say again, if hope drives faithfulness, how do we grow our hope in God? In tribulation, be patient. Trust God's timing and don't force your own. Grow, learn, pray, study, worship, give thanks. Let the Holy Spirit forge in your heart an unbreakable passion for what is good and what is right in God's eyes. And finally, hope in God's sovereignty. Trust his love, trust his care, and again, I would say trust his timing, and never forget that God is always at work.